The House and Senate will both return Monday. The House will stay in through Wednesday, while the Senate will stay in through Thursday. This week in the House, the House will return Monday with the first vote set for 6.30 p.m. At that time, the House is scheduled to take up five bills under suspension of the rules. On Tuesday and Wednesday, the House will consider H.J. Res. 30, a Congressional Review Act resolution of disapproval regarding the rules submitted by the Department of Labor relating to prudence and loyalty in selecting plan investments and exercising shareholder rights, and H.R. 347, the Rain in Act. H.J. Res. 30, the CRA resolution of disapproval, would overturn a Biden Labor Department rule that was promulgated on December 1 of last year. Under the new Biden rule, planned fiduciaries may consider climate change and other environmental, social, and governance factors when they make investment decisions and when they exercise shareholder rights, including voting on shareholder resolutions and board nominations. That's a bad rule. It overturns a rule promulgated by the Trump Department of Labor in 2020 that specifically prohibited fund managers from taking such matters into account when making decisions on where they were going to put their funds. This new Biden rule introduces politics into what should be economic decision making. And to make matters worse, the politics are all left wing. So that's a Biden Labor Department rule we'd like to see overturned. I expect the House will have no trouble in passing this resolution, but I also expect the resolution will have difficulty in the Senate. And please note, I said difficulty in the Senate, not it will go nowhere in the Senate. It's a CRA resolution of disapproval, which means it's not subject to filibuster, which means it only needs 51 votes to pass. And for the next several weeks, at least, Senate Democrats are down at least one number, as Pennsylvania freshman Senator John Fetterman will be absent from the floor. That means if one other Senate Democrat, maybe Joe Manchin or maybe Kirsten Sinema, who no longer calls herself a Democrat but still caucuses and votes with them, crosses over, it could pass. We'll see. H.R. 347 is called the Rain in Act. That's an acronym for the Reduce Exacerbated Inflation Negatively Impacting the Nation Act. The bill requires the Office of Management and Budget and the Council of Economic Advisors to provide an inflation estimate for each executive order that is projected to cause an annual gross budgetary effect of at least $1 billion. The bill only has 12 co-sponsors so far, but at least four of them are powerful committee chairmen, including Kay Granger, chairman of the Appropriations Committee, Jason Smith, chairman of Ways and Means. Patrick McHenry, Chairman of Financial Services, and James Comer, Chairman of Oversight and Accountability. I expect the bill will pass, but I also expect the bill will see no action in the Senate. This week in the Senate, the Senate will convene for legislative business at 3 p.m. on Monday. At that time, Oklahoma Republican Senator James Lankford will be recognized to continue the annual tradition of delivering President George Washington's farewell address. This is a Senate tradition that began in 1862 during the Civil War. It was seen as a morale-boosting gesture during that conflict, according to the Senate website. Since 1896, it has continued every year, with the two parties alternating speakers every year. Since I am delivering this broadcast to you now from my home studio, which sits on property that was once a part of the original Mount Vernon estate, about one mile away from Mount Vernon, President Washington's home, I will be watching with great interest. 
Following that, at 5.30 p.m., the Senate will proceed to a roll call vote on cloture on the nomination of Jamar K. Walker to be a U.S. District Judge for the Eastern District of Virginia. Then, based on the Majority Leader's cloture filings, I anticipate we'll see votes on Maria Araujo Khan to be a U.S. Circuit Judge for the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, Jamal N. Whitehead to be a U.S. District Judge for the Western District of Washington, Aracel Martinez Olguin to be a U.S. District Judge for the District for the Northern District of California, Margaret R. Guzman to be a U.S. District Judge for the District of Massachusetts. Another Biden judicial nominee the Senate will likely be considering soon warrants a moment of our attention. It's no secret that Joe Biden has been doing everything he can, especially since he lost control of the House in last November's elections, to move judicial nominees through the Senate meat grinder. As long as he has a 51-vote majority in the Senate, he can tee those nominees up and let Schumer and his Democrat majority knock them down the fairway, and there's little we can do to stop them. About the only weapon we have in this situation is shame. So Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, no rookie to the ways of the Senate, employed that tactic last week to discuss one of Biden's judicial nominees, a man named Michael Arthur Delaney, who's been nominated to serve as a circuit judge on the First Circuit Court of Appeals. Delaney once had a client in private practice. The client was an elite prep school, and it was defending itself in a civil suit related to a criminal sexual assault conviction that involved a 15-year-old girl. What did Delaney do? In the words of Senator McConnell on the Senate floor, quote, The young lady and her family had hoped to file the lawsuit anonymously as Jane Doe and persuade the school to change its ways. That was the path to accountability. But Mr. Delaney fought the girl's desire for privacy and anonymity. He used it as a weapon against her. He said he'd only let the girl remain anonymous if she were subjected to a gag order about the incident, and he threatened that if the family refused to settle on terms favorable to the school and went to trial, he would ask the court to reveal her name. In other words, Mr. Delaney tried to turn a teenage victim's privacy into a hostage to help a prep school avoid accountability. The girl's father saw Mr. Delaney's behavior for what it was, quote, a threat. The victim says she spoke to the Biden Department of Justice while they were vetting Mr. Delaney. Apparently, the administration ignored her. So, apparently, did her two senators. End quote. The young lady's two senators were, for the record, Senators Jean Shaheen and Maggie Hassan of New Hampshire. Now to illegal immigration. A week and a half ago, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy led a delegation of freshman Republicans to meet with and get a briefing from CPB officials in the Tucson area. Back here in Washington, the House Homeland Security Committee, under the chairmanship of Tennessee Republican Congressman Mark Green, will hold a hearing Tuesday entitled, Every State is a Border State, Examining Secretary Mayorkas' Border Crisis featuring testimony from Ms. Rebecca Kiesling, a private citizen from Rochester Hills, Michigan, Mark Lamb, the sheriff of Pinal County, Arizona, Dr. Robert Trenchell, the president and CEO of the Yuma Regional Medical Center in Yuma, Arizona, and David J. Beer, the associate director of immigration studies at the Cato Institute. Now a COVID follow-up. Sunday, the Wall Street Journal reported that based on new intelligence, the Energy Department has now concluded 
that the COVID emergency likely originated in a Chinese lab. This represents a shift in thinking for the energy department, which previously had been undecided on the most likely origin for the coronavirus emergency. The energy department now joins the FBI in thinking a lab leak was the most likely cause of the emergency. Four other intelligence agencies of the U.S. government, including a national intelligence panel, still believe the emergency was most likely the result of natural transmission. Two are undecided. Says the journal, quote, The Energy Department's conclusion is the result of new intelligence and is significant because the agency has considerable scientific expertise and oversees a network of U.S. national laboratories, some of which conduct biological research, end quote. The journal report continues, and this is important, quote, Despite the agency's differing analyses, the update reaffirmed an existing consensus between them that COVID-19 was not the result of a Chinese biological weapons program, the people who have read the classified report said, end quote. Now to inflation, bad news on the inflation front. The Fed's favorite measure of inflation, the Personal Consumption Expenditures Index, was released Friday, and it shows inflation surging again. The monthly increase was 0.6%. That's the highest since last June. To put that in context, in December it was 0.2, in November it was 0.2, in October it was 0.4, in September it was 0.3. The January surge feeds into the year-over-year average, so the PCE is up 5.4% in January year-over-year, up from 5.3% in December, and that's the wrong direction for that number. The markets know the PCE index is the Fed's key barometer for inflation. (coughs) Excuse me. So the markets are now readjusting on the assumption that this new number will be taken by the Fed to mean that its rate hikes haven't yet done the job in corralling inflation. And that means it's very likely we'll continue to see the Fed raising rates. Jason Furman, one of President Obama's chief economic advisors, tweeted his reaction to the PCE numbers, quote, the economy is very overheated. We have made little, if any, progress on inflation. There is little, if any, reason to expect a large slowdown going forward. In related news, there's a new CBO report on the economy. On Wednesday, February 15, the Congressional Budget Office released a new estimate of the federal budget over the next decade. The numbers reflect a significant shift in the analysis, and it's a shift to the bad. Rather than facing deficits averaging $1.3 trillion per year for the next decade, CBO anticipates we'll be seeing deficits of $2 trillion a year for the next decade. That means we'll add $19 trillion to the national debt over the next decade. To make matters worse, the analysis projects the growth in spending on programs like Social Security and Medicare will far outpace the growth in revenues coming into the federal government. CBO expects spending on Social Security will grow by two-thirds over the next decade. That's more than twice the expected growth for spending on defense and other domestic discretionary spending combined. A decade from now, CBO projects, the federal government will spend as much on Social Security as it spends on all discretionary spending, defense and domestic combined. The IRS misses a deadline. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen last year promised that the Internal Revenue Service would report by February 17 of this year, 
its plan for spending the $80 billion appropriated for it in last year's dishonestly named Inflation Reduction Act. Shockingly, the IRS missed the deadline. Asked by the Journal of Accountancy about the operational plan and the February 17 deadline, IRS spokesman Eric Smith said the IRS has been working on the plan and, quote, expects to deliver the plan to the secretary in coming weeks, end quote. There's been no word on whether the IRS will assess itself a penalty and then add interest charges. Now to the student loan debt case. Tuesday, the Supreme Court will hear arguments in an extraordinarily significant matter that will give the justices the opportunity once again to stand up for one of the founders' foundational doctrines, the separation of powers, a principle necessary to the prevention of a tyrannical government. This should be an embarrassing moment for a man who spent as long as President Biden did in the U.S. Senate, a body that reveres the work of the men who created the Constitution. Twice already, on his COVID vaccine mandate for large private businesses and on the eviction moratorium, the Supreme Court has overturned Biden policies because his administration overstepped its constitutional authority and usurped the powers of the Congress. If the justices maintain their reverence for James Madison's arguments in Federalist 51, the case to be heard Tuesday will be Biden's third strike. At issue is Biden's student loan debt relief program, which would forgive up to $20,000 in student loans for up to 43 million borrowers at a cost of more than $400 billion to taxpayers. The court will hear arguments in two related cases Tuesday in both Biden v. Nebraska and Department of Education v. Brown. The question at hand is whether the executive branch has the authority on its own to cancel student loan debt. Despite the Constitution's clear delineation of powers that only Congress can authorize and appropriate money, Biden used the pretext of the COVID pandemic to unilaterally usurp for himself powers that belong only to Congress. Congressional authorization and congressional appropriation together are known as the power of the purse, one of the principal checks the legislative branch has over the executive. If the court leaves intact Biden's student loan debt relief plan, the court will be saying the executive can usurp the power of the purse from Congress. And if the executive can usurp the power of the purse from the Congress, where will it end? If the court leaves his student loan debt relief plan intact, what's to keep Biden from bypassing Congress to spend taxpayer dollars to, say, rip out all the gas stoves in private homes and install in their place new electric ovens? or to purchase a new electric vehicle for every automobile owner in the country, or to buy and install solar panels on every home in the country. Compounding compounding Biden's problem further, the court last year ruled in the landmark West Virginia versus EPA that executive branch actions involving questions of major economic and political significance require what the court called clear congressional authorization. But the Congress never authorized the president to have the federal government assume the student loan debt of these 43 million debtors. Not only did the Congress fail to authorize them, the Congress explicitly chose not to authorize it, not once, but twice during the COVID emergency. About which, here's a simple question. If current law allows the president to exercise this authority, why did liberals in the Congress believe it necessary to pass a new law explicitly giving him the power to do this. And when the first attempt failed, why did they feel a need to try a second time? 
Biden may not be aware Congress did not pass a law giving him the authority to do this. He said in October in an interview that he had, quote, just signed a law that's being challenged by my Republican colleagues, unquote, and that his student debt assumption plan had already been, quote, passed. I got it passed by a vote or two, end quote. That, of course, never happened. The framers of our Constitution quite thoughtfully and deliberately considered the problem of tyranny in government and concluded that the best way to prevent it was to create a separation of powers. Madison addressed the issue in Federalist 51, famously explaining that, quote, ambition must be made to counteract ambition, end quote. The stakes in this case cannot be overstated. Our founders agonized over the deliberate separation of powers. The Supreme Court now has the opportunity to put the Biden administration back in its appropriate executive lane. Madison's arguments in Federalist 51 should still apply, even in the wake of the COVID emergency. Now to the Biden documents follow-up. On Tuesday, February 14, the New York Times reported that Biden administration officials had agreed to brief the so-called Gang of Eight on the classified documents found in the homes and offices of Joe Biden, Donald Trump, and Mike Pence. The Gang of Eight refers to the four leaders of the House and Senate and the four leaders of the House and Senate Intelligence Committees. This is not going to be enough to satisfy congressional demands for transparency on the issue. For one thing, the briefing will be limited only to the leaders of the two intelligence committees rather than including all the members of the two committees. More importantly, the DOJ officials will not be providing access to the actual documents themselves. The next day, CNN reported that the Federal Bureau of Investigation had in recent weeks twice searched the archives of the University of Delaware where 1,850 boxes worth of Joe Biden's Senate documents reside. Though it was reported that the agents found no documents with classification markings, they did take some material from the university. And finally, January 6 documents and Tucker Carlson. Last Monday, Axios reported that Speaker McCarthy had given Fox News host Tucker Carlson exclusive access to 41,000 hours of January 6 Capitol surveillance video footage. By Thursday, a group of media outlets, including ABC, Axios, CBS, CNN, the EW Scripps Company, Gannett, the Los Angeles Times, Politico, and ProPublica, had joined in a coalition to demand equal access to the surveillance video footage. And that's our Washington Report for this week.